Before the Industrial Revolution, economists saw land and agriculture as the fundamental source of wealth. When feudalism gave way to mass production and the increased power of manufacturing, labor and capital became the chief measures of economic might. With the coming of the information age, however, power has shifted away from large factories and massive payrolls towards platforms for collecting, analyzing, and leveraging data on human behavior. The prism in which we now interact captures our every move, thought, and increasingly anticipates our desires. Breaking free has never been more difficult. Well, I'm not a crook. I've burned everything I've got. A military-industrial complex. A new world order. But we are here to destroy the control over the industry of other people. I did not trade arms for hostages. It's been time dealing. Hello, welcome to the myth of the 20th century. I'm Hank Oslo. I'm still alive. How, how about y'all? I think so. I think I'm alive. Nick, how are you doing? You get a, you get a little bit of the coof there. Uh, I think I have the plague, man. I, I I might have the I might have the plague. So, are you gonna self quarantine, or are you gonna try to give it to people? No, yeah, I'm going to try to use it to, uh, you know, within the law, uh, liquidate all boomer libs within my 50 mile radius. How do you know they're a lib? <laughs> you can read their bumper stickers. Uh, f- serious question. I actually yeah, want to you, know, you can tell. <laughs> That's the answer. Well, what if they're inside? <laughs> they're not outside. We'll trail them to their car, see what kind of bumper stickers they have, then you cough them. You can tell. You, you they don't even need bumper there's stickers. There's repelling gunfire. That's how you know if they're they're a lib or not. You, <laughs> you, you can tell just looking at their car. You don't need a, you don't need bumper stickers. Uh, an automobile is enough to have a data point to figure out someone. You know, Nick, some of us rocked the the stealth look back in the day. I'm not going to uh, make and model docs, but uh, it was okay. Well, let's. It let's, was an extremely without, without naming uh, any specific car models because I know what Hank is saying. Yes, I, I without naming a specific model, there are certain car models that you see them, and you would come to the natural conclusion that the driver is a libtard. However, it depends also on how the car is behaving. You know, I was That's true. Perhaps I was completely up in the ass of everybody ahead of me. It was uh, it was borderline unsafe. So, you know, it was it was the cage fight. I, of, uh, I, I, I won't say the, the automobile alone isn't necessarily enough, but it most of the time is. I mean, other data points are, you know, clothing, physiognomy, mm-hmm. speech. Speech is easy. Once they start talking, it's it's pretty easy from there. Hey, what is that physiognomy, physiognomy that 
what what is the physiognomy of uh, the the modern Wesley Crusher? It's basically Will Wheaton with the beard and the mouth open. What is that called? Soy boy. I guess so. I mean, they, so it's very well manicured beard. I mean, when I rock my beard, it's a full face beard, but like I don't really manicure it, and I just look like a crazy homeless wolfman dude, and I just sort of you know. And like puff out my shoulders and intimidate people, but <laughs> I don't. I don't open my mouth. The people who know me in real life know that I, I don't ever really smile. So uh, you can't you can't accuse me of, uh, of oh, being geez. one of them on looks alone. <laughs> my my interpretation is that it's the facial expression of someone who has never known joy or happiness, trying to imitate what what that expression and what that human emotion would feel like well someone had the, the wisdom to call it the fear grimace and it's the, something that is actually seen i think huh. in primate populations there's a thing that chimpanzees howler monkeys uh, capuchin monkeys a few species of apes and monkeys do where they open their mouth very wide and it looks like a smile to the average humans like a big gaping smile and they show their teeth and the whole point is to elucidate that they're uh, they're trying to uh, project um, contentment with the situation they're in, but in actuality, they're actually very anxious. Right, they're moments. very anxious. They they feel uncomfortable. They're trying to blend in and make noise, but they're actually kind of freaking out internally. Their heart rate is up. Everything. So I think that. Uh, What's probably going on with those people, and God, this is an old meme. I can't believe we're talking about it. But what's probably going on with those people ultimately is, and especially the, the boomers that do it, it's, it's very, very cringe and weird and we see it in real life. Um, but I think that they're trying to feign, first of all, that they actually understand what's happening in a situation. Um, B, that they're, that they're just as cool as the kids, and C, that they're totally not uncomfortable and totally having a good time. What does my phone tell me what emoji that matches? That'll, that'll clear it up. Type in cringe face. And so it, wait, it's kind of like when I walk into the, uh, to the local youth center, the recreation center, you know, and then I, I dab, you know, well, what you got to do is you got to walk into the local youth center with all the uh, youths and you need to like do something extremely racist like T-pose or, uh, you know, throw up the OK hand sign. That's another old meme. I don't know. You got to do something to attract attention. That's that's much that's much better than doing the, the boomer slash. I don't know. <laughs> younger soy guy fear grimace monkey face the other thing that you'll see with these guys maybe, is they're all like what they'll do we uh they're holding a piece of electronics like they just got a brand new nintendo new, new switch whatever and they're trying to show you how excited and happy they are for a yeah. fucking toy uh it, it looks like somebody is feigning surprise and delight yeah and it's like i got this on christmas thank you mommy and it it looks so so childish i think it's partially intended to be non-threatening 
um, partially intended just to fill the, the the air, the empty air. It's sort of like when uh, somebody's taking a photograph and everybody says cheese. Some people are good at actually looking authentic, but most people kind of just have this like teeth face, and it just doesn't look right. To so take non-candid photographs well, in order to. Yeah. Appear happy, you have to be authentically happy. I mean, do you think, Adam, that maybe by recycling and hashing out these old memes that our Boomer podcast may reach a new appeal to the to the youth? Do we have any Boomer listeners? Are there any old people listening? Do we? I assume that the only people that listen to our podcast follow... We are the Boomers. Yeah, like, we, oh. we have, like, age 27... Through thirty-four exactly. That's our that's our age <laughs> well, bracket. I know. I know of at least. I guess James Lafond is our. <laughs> brother. No, we've we've interviewed plenty of uh, boomers. I I, I just we have. Yeah, I'm a, I'm the first to cuck on this one. I don't think all boomers are created equal. So there's some good ones and bad ones. Actually, all the recent like, all the recent polling on like just social issues in politics, boomers are actually the most standout. Mo- you know, even moderately right-wing people in the United States, like the younger generations in this country, yeah. are either are they either lying, which is totally possible, they're lying oh, completely. They're yeah, the I mean, the, this is the generation. Here. This is the generation that is actually cognizant uh, for the first time that, like, oh, somebody's asking me something. That means it's going to be recorded. Yeah, like they've deeply exactly. internalized that, and so they're very careful to give the correct response. But I mean, like, right wing boomer out migration is the only thing keeping Texas red, like implying it's keeping Texas red. But that's what the polling data reflects. That basically, uh, people bitch about uh, Californians moving out, and like it is a problem. Uh, and it will increasingly become a problem. We were talking about this a little bit in the the pre-show. There's a lot of uh, Silicon Valley refugees. But historically, the right wing, uh, which is to say white uh, population of California getting ethnically cleansed from California uh, has been like a net right wing influence on the states that they've uh, retired slash moved to, like notably... Arizona, Idaho, Texas. Yeah, Colorado is interesting one. I've only been there a few times, mainly yeah, in, the air, in, in the airport. But it, there's a lot of Hispanic immigrants there. I, I'm I'm just guessing they've countervailed that because of the heavy numbers there. Uh, Nick, you got something? No, oh, I wanted to make the point that I, on kind of a serious note that I think that gets missed a lot in this whole generational warfare stuff, and that is that. The boomers are not the target of the same level of demoralization and, uh, you know, psyop type propaganda as the youth are. You know, yeah, they're they're a generation that has expended largely their usefulness to Zog, so they don't have the same level of, uh, you know, they're they're not they're not being mind jacked the same way that the youth are. Yeah, I, I think. But, the, but uh, couldn't you argue that they were mind jacked? Back in the day, when well, they, they were, were but the to like I mean, a softer kind of what, level. They, there, there's they were, no but like action out of imperative that, that's that was programmed point. into them. Yeah. Well, E. Michael Jones uh, talks about this a lot, and he basically, in in sort of retrospect, he he is astonished at how much propagandizing was going on in his youth. 
it, which he wasn't aware of uh, until he got older. But um, I, I do think the 60s were an incredibly tumultuous time. And I was even thinking about this the other day. It's like, is today worse or better? I really don't know. I mean, I know there was the uh, SDS and the bombings in the 70s, but the 60s were insane. I mean, the president was was shot in front of uh, you know, hundreds of witnesses. There was uh, the war. You had uh, the rise of the serial killers starting in the 60s. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think the, like the the '60s is what like the real death of the republic in a lot of ways. I mean, you have presidents being openly assassinated by the security the services. You have uh, the opening of the floodgates with the '65 immigration. You have cultural decay in '68. You have the mass fetishization and media coverage of you know sadistic serial killings. And ritual abuse, ritual slaughter, like you, you know, the foreign policy of the United States basically implodes with Vietnam, and you know the world is more or less falling apart. Uh, if you know, I, I feel like the '60s was uh, similar to I don't I don't know like the the final days of the Roman Republic before it really transitioned into the early days of the Roman Empire and. Uh, it felt, you know, it feels like the, the the equation was sort of a fusion, a false fusion equation, where we were going to burn out all of the existing social bonds, social capital institutions of the United States, and out of that, we would get this massive amount of energy that could be directed into um, the birth of the American Empire, right? To you know, actually start systematically implementing control over you know large spots of the world starting in the 70s and uh ultimately it, it it backfired at the roman empire the roman empire dissolved most of the fundamental foundations that you know existed within the republic that allowed it to function and start you know towards the end of the 60s we we completely dissolved you know traditional social bonds traditional american uh you know, acculturation. Uh, we, that was, you know, right before the early 70s when we had the new geography of production, as it was known. You know, um, it feels like that was the kind of final, uh, I don't know, era of good feelings in the United States. The 90s, in the 90s, felt like some kind of brief, momentous return to that before it was quickly dashed away with. Well, now that the Soviet Union's dead, we can actually, instead of rolling back the empire, we can, you know, completely unleash it and start bombing the shit out of Eastern Europe and the Horn of Africa and, you know, completely expand the, the gay agenda and the culture wars. Yeah. Yeah, I think that there's a common fallacy where people seem to think that time is in some way on our side, that... You know, the, the fact that people were pointing out where some of this lead 50s, 60s, you know, somehow is going to something when they all come to pass, as they already have. Yeah. So well, today we, uh, we wanted to talk about how we got here, I guess, <laughs> how, the, how the technocrats took over. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, say? well, yeah, I, yeah, I was going to say, uh, I guess to just to kind of get the ball rolling. Guys, what is TikTok? 
Why is this in the news every day? The well, that's actually Chinese, days? which which is weird uh, we- <laughs> because normally all the uh, told the you we were a boomer podcast. <laughs> Why is TikTok at the forefront of uh, NatSec tech technology and political discussion right now? Because recommendation algorithms. I can Explain. I can elaborate on this. So the, the heathen Chinaman. Uh, I actually honestly don't know what TikTok is. Can, can, TikTok can someone explain this to me? Is the, is the, the, the dancing nurses child of Snapchat and Vine? I, I know about the dancing nurses, but I, that's all I know about it. Yeah, and I know vaguely. I know what Vine is, kind of, because I know who the uh, I know who I know who Jake Paul is. Um, <laughs> I that's about I, it. I, I vaguely do. <laughs> I think the millennial is the new boomer. I mean, like it's it's Gen Z now. It's whatever they're called. No, dude, TikTok is like exclusively for almost exclusively for uh, like Zoomers and millennials. That's, that's what I mean. The millennial is the new boomer. Endlessly when they try and do TikTok so, stuff. Is it, so is it a prostitution app? Not like no, OnlyFans, but I wish. <laughs> Um, so, Hank, what what is this recommendation algorithm that has uh, everyone in the State Department and DOD terrified? Uh, so it's not the recommendation algorithm is not the specific reason that they are worried, um, but it also doesn't help. Uh, the recommendation algorithm was the reason why it became popular uh, in the first place. They've gotten extremely good at segmenting their, uh, because their content is so short and because so, the, where did it spread from though? Like, so, okay, China. you have, right. But you have some kind of online platform that you're already on like Facebook and who's well, like, it, how, it where debuted, are they seeing the TikTok It debuted as like a Chinese app under some Chinese name. I don't, I don't know what the name is. I don't, I don't speak the Chinese, but uh, it debuted under a Chinese name, then they made a American version, and they're like, "Oh, it's it's okay. It's a Malaysian subsidiary, so like it's all good uh, to uh, to market this thing in America." But it's the same thing under the hood. Like theoretically, there was some complicated thing where they like licensed the technology and like the the data is stored to some server in Malaysia. None of this shit really matters. The the important thing is that the reason why it caught on to begin with is because these things are very short. They're all under a minute. I think that's their like hard cap. I've never actually installed this thing. I only uh, see it by reference. But they uh, encourage very short pieces of content and their data collection on... Uh, uh, basically, what you look at, click on, what hovers on your screen, etc., is extremely aggressive, uh, and that allows them to bootstrap um, measures of popularity that are cultivated to individual users. That um, and also because, like, kind of the the genre is inherently um, viral and uh, encourages. Um, like quick through to the next thing. Like let's let's see how deep this rabbit hole goes. Okay. So there's like a share button, and it goes to all your usual suspects, like Twitter, Facebook, and yeah, that's but repeat. like the the tracking is the tra- the in app tracking because it's not just like what you watch. It's also like hover. It's it's UI interactions. 
So things. That yeah, I got you. I was just curious how they got there. Past. So, like it's it's a, uh, it's really only by virtue of its popularity that it's considered a threat because they do some pretty aggressive harvesting of data from your phones. Um, they go through a lot of hoops to obfuscate um, what they're actually doing on your phone. Like everything is very heavily sandboxed. Um, so it's not like, you know, you can just, oh, hack in, like clone your phone, whatever the fuck. But there's enough kind of leakiness in the sandboxes and enough incentives um, to use that for uh, various forms of information gathering that it's like, okay, this is like, just assume that any app with a sufficient Chinese connection is just run by the People's Liberation Army or the equivalent organ. Well, it's like, okay, so they have an app, like the People's Liberation Army has a very popular app. Like, you can see why that would be concerning. Did, did you read the um, the Stratchery article that I think came out today? on uh it's called the tiktok war yeah um i mean it it brings this up where uh it, it you know mentions about halfway through that all chinese internet companies and that's kind of broad but most of these tech companies coming out of china uh are compelled now not let's say forced compelled by the country's national intelligence law to turn over any and all data that the government demands, and that power is not limited by China's borders. Um, and then more, you know, goes on to say, moreover, this requisition of data is not subject to warrants or courts, as is the case with U.S. government requests for data from Facebook or any other entity. The Chinese government absolutely could be running a learning algorithm in parallel uh, on all of TikTok's data. Yeah, I mean, you would expect that they would have all of the data. I don't know, yeah. honestly, what the learning algorithm gives them. Uh, like, that's Well, it depends on what kind of data they're getting. I mean, in theory, if... Yeah, I mean, you're right fair. that it's a lot of these apps are sandboxed. But, you know, people do share permissions, give these apps permission to access yeah, contacts. Contacts are a big Access one. their photos, their videos, their files... Yeah. Right. And on top of that, what are you getting? You're getting um, all of, you know, all the EXIF data off of those files. You're, you know, for those non-tech people, that's EXIF. EXIF data, look into that. You will also be getting all of your kind of standard ifconfig stuff like IP, port, everything. So you might be able to get their mobile carrier where you know if they're behind a router or not what exactly their geolocation I mean, it's, might it's be. a nice data set like if you have yeah. just an arbitrary app that gives you some kind of even passive data collection because you can right. you can like cause data to be generated too even if you don't have the explicit permission like you can you can prompt for things even if you don't have the permission to do it on an ongoing basis because it's like core to the functionality of the app you, I mean, once you have a certain install base, you also are able to start talking to engineers at some of the big vendors. Like, if you've got an app with, you know, 300 million installed users or whatever level it's at, like, Google cares if they break your app with, like, an OS update. So they 
check stuff, which means that you can build in little nuggets there and you can kind of have like a little bit of a TAT with them. And I mean, it's, it's a valuable property. It like, it's not obvious what kind of uh, immediate specific nefarious use cases uh, there are, but it's like, okay, if you're in a geopolitical competition with this country and they have the they have this like toehold on a lot of uh mobile devices like i mean people forget that like okay you're not supposed to have your phone like on you and active when you're at sea but like jesus christ there's a lot of marines and soldiers that just have cell phones and they've got dude. I've seen multiple active duty military do fucking TikToks. Yeah, like it's there's no way that they're not doing it. Which is like again, it's like okay, so like you you have to put on your black hat and you have to think like okay, I've got uh, I've got like IP based location data for like this group of people on an ongoing basis maybe i even have like actual uh, geolocation from like gps on an ongoing basis depending on what the what is set up there maybe i have like some amount of contact network tracing it's like okay so like you know you construct hypotheticals and none of them are necessarily uh incredibly compelling as like a red siren klaxon uh, like incident thing, but it's like, you know, there, there's enough of them that you could say that, okay, having this capability lets you just stir mischief. It's like, okay, all of your supply sergeants suddenly get texts saying, fuck you, you cheating son of a bitch. Like I'm leaving you and I'm taking the kids and like, the mortgage is gone, etc. Your dog died, whatever. That could cause a disruption, and that's something that is technically feasible if you know who all those people are. And it's easier to find out who all those people are if you have that toehold on their device, where you've got a nice list of contacts that's like Supply Sergeant Ramirez or whatever. So and we know I mean, that the, the, the Chinese are interested in this kind of data. The OPA hack uh took place what 2013 i I, at least the first one that we know about um i think is indicative of what exactly the chinese are mostly interested in is finding weaknesses in the american civil service and the american contractor realm uh the american bureaucracy yeah and it's potentially high-ranking foreign policy officials and and like i mean if you want to talk about I beat this drum to death, but I mean, having the toehold on the device is not nearly as uh, handy as having a toehold in the company that writes the software for the device. Oh, yeah. Especially now that, I mean, I, I think we were also talking about this a little bit before the show. Now that everybody's working from home and doesn't actually see their coworkers, like how many people in the org chart are just fictitious? You have an intern that's hired on a remote basis to do whatever that has a certain set of 
permissions to access certain systems, gets paid. Often these guys are running QA scripts, by the way. I think like QA engineers uh, are, from what I've seen in my personal life, are almost always foreigns. Like they're generally Indian or subcon. I've had a few that have been Russian. Um, but, you know, QA engineers are what you need to look out for because they'll have all kinds of nifty permissions granted to them. They'll be able to see all kinds of things. And generally, it's, it's you know, it's grunt work. It's really shitty work that requires a lot of, you know, 13 hours of sitting in front of a computer. Well, theoretically, so, it does. In reality, yeah, it theoretically takes, it you, does. Know, so, <laughs> you know, a squad I, I, I uh, two hours apiece. That being one of the primary vectors in which you will get, uh, you will be had is if you outsource your QA engineering to foreign contractors, there's no way at some point you will not be burned. And it's not even foreign contractors. It's literally you hired somebody that you have only seen in 2D. You hire them based on a resume, based on a live video stream, based on uh, a uh, coding examination. If you have substantial resources, A, you've got a cadre of extremely smart people that can legitimately pass the interview, but it's also the, uh, uh, I forget the the Italian play, the guy whispering uh, in uh, Fabio's ear or whatever as he's trying to seduce the lady on the balcony. Um, uh, I think that's like just every romance novel cover. Yeah, no, it's... um, uh, I can't remember the name, but it's uh, it's the guy whispering in uh, the ear of the interviewer because there's honestly only so many interview uh, interview questions, uh, especially once you start actually spamming candidates, especially once you get somebody inside the loop of the recruiting channel where they're feeding people into certain positions or certain teams. Some of the people that you work with may literally not exist. It's a face and a name, but they're not connected. And the work attached to the name isn't being done by the person that's attached to the face. And so on and so forth. And suddenly your whatever permissions they end up having, because the double-edged sword is, you know, you you start thinking about contingencies like, okay, we need to shut it down. Like we've been compromised. Like who, who holds the switch? Everybody's virtual. Who has the permissions to do the thing? How many people have the permissions to do the thing? What happens when those permissions conflict? It's a, it's a very interesting exercise to war game this for any particular company or department just got a lot easier with uh, everybody VPNing in, everybody working remotely, everybody being hired remotely, all of a sudden, uh, it's uh, well. Some it's some companies great. seem to have this policy of having the webcam turned on, which I'm extremely against. And obviously, we don't do this for obvious reasons. But even in a corporate setting, I just find it somewhat uh, disturbing to have big brothers staring at That's not a. Uh, I don't think that there's any. Uh, a reasonable company that has, you know, an eight-hour live webcam demand of their employees. Yeah. I mean, even if there were, honestly, 
you can pay somebody to sit in front of a webcam for eight yeah. hours. Yeah. Sure. So let's um, let's kind of take a step back and maybe examine what we were uh, sort of thinking this show could focus on. Where we're all obviously talking about technology, especially as this global crisis has made remote work uh, all the more essential. Um, how did we get here is kind of the question in our personal lives, in the corporate world, and as well as the political world. Uh, we just mentioned how China was leveraging the fact that they have this app uh, on Americans' phones uh, and in America's mindset of doing a certain behavior, and then they can collect data on that. And also, because they're on your devices, they can also observe other things. Uh, how did we get here? I mean, it's been a long road. I I think we'll we'll give this show the title uh, like Pirates of Silicon Valley, something of that effect. And that's actually based on a a movie that I saw uh, back in the day, actually when it was on TV, uh, documenting um, how the and it was a docudrama, but it was it was showcasing how the Microsoft and Apple empires were created and how they became extreme rivals and how that platform concept really became essential to controlling how you uh, pay for your technology uh, at the very least. But as the internet evolved, uh, using the operating system as sort of a portal into the user, uh, the data collection and the data became so useful and valuable to advertisers, but also to marketers in general, and also to politicians or people in power as you're seen with companies like Palantir so it was kind of a one-two step where it was the 90s were really about fighting for control over your computing experience but not actually seeing what you're doing it was a very much um, an, an economic model or a business model to capture the most money but once the internet became quick enough and people were enough people were on it Places like Google and Facebook, which actually don't charge you for it, what they're offering you directly, you end up paying for it on the back end by giving them all of your information. And and the NSA, you know, is very happy to take a take a, a snapshot of all this data as well, as revealed by uh, Snowden and um, Bill Benny and others. But um, the, the mentioning of China was interesting to me, too, because I had read um, a book recently uh, called AI Superpowers, and it's obviously, you know, a nice title to, uh, designed to sell the maximum number of books possible. But it's really about the competition between uh, China and America in general. But I would really say more so for the Chinese military, a little bit of the U.S. military Definitely Silicon Valley and definitely Chinese tech companies like the ones that are creating TikTok. And the author's main contention was that today, just like the Microsoft platform had sort of this huge economies of scale and network effect, um, the the number of users, the sheer number of users actually is a huge advantage, which gives China a huge lead. Because, he is completely correct. Yeah. In the age of machine learning, the more user data sets you have the faster you can iterate to maximize not, the right it's not only about the number of users it's about the concentration so because of chinese state policy their user base is extremely 
concentrated onto particular companies, apps, whatever, that are uh, effectively agents of the Chinese government. I mean, to like, obviously, Google is to some extent an agent of the United States government. They have an entire department whose job is doing color revolutions. But it's not as deeply linked of a relationship on a deep on a day by day basis as uh, somebody like ByteDance um, with the actual Chinese government. And and Google is also heavily infiltrated by Chinese. Oh, I mean, obviously. whether they're spies or not, I but knew that, a guy that infiltration. Who, I mean, it's the Google situation in particular is interesting because we really only have a couple of products that make money. It's just completely ad driven and everything else is just basically icing on the cake. So it's, <laughs> I mean, when you talk about what I was uh, complaining about that you, you can't rearrange your playlist on uh, when you're streaming on a, your uh, your uh, integrated YouTube app uh, streaming to your uh, your Google uh, Chromecast. Like you can add things to your playlist, you can switch around positions in your playlist, but you can't actually rearrange the shit in your playlist. There's no money in it. Like you do that because it integrates with the ecosystem. Like you're you're stuck in there. Nobody's making any money. It's just designed to keep you on the plantation where you can watch ads, have your uh, have your information harvested, and eventually, you know, be uh, convinced uh, through your curated news feed that it's a great idea to overthrow your local government. Um, like that's uh, that's like a kind of very extrapolated relationship as opposed to like the very uh precise um censorship that the uh censorship and cultivation of opinion that the chinese are up to like you can see this if you look at um whenever you see somebody in mainstream uh conservative uh movements like sean davis types this is who i follow on twitter in order to get a sense of these kinds of people their sole complaint is well why don't we have the things that the chinese government has like you know the nba goes out of their way to kowtow to the chinese they won't let you write free hong kong on a jersey but they will let you write burn the jews why don't we ban that too it's like dude you're like, I would say you're missing the point if I believed that your underlying principles were reflected at all in your actions. But I believe that you literally just want, like, Chinese Communist Party level of controls over your uh, your state industries or de facto state industries. So, I mean, my point in this very elaborate uh, uh, discussion is that the Chinese state apparatus has more deeply entwined uh, access to a much smaller number of actors with a much more concentrated user base that gives them a lot uh, denser data sets. They're not just bigger, they're denser. They have more individual information on each user and they have more ability to run controlled experiments 
where they make some change and they see what the actual effect is on whatever uh, data set they're cultivating from. And that's exactly how you build uh, AI data sets and AI algorithms. Like all the algorithms are public. There's not a goddamn thing that's proprietary in a kind of the cutting edge uh, machine learning scene. Like all of the uh, all of the conferences are public. All of the cutting edge papers get published. They're routinely re-implemented by everybody. And the only thing that's difficult is systems integration. So in that scenario, and, and the mass data set to begin with, right? Which I think like is... if you have a if you have a massive proprietary data set, then that's extremely valuable. But the algorithm per se, it's like it helps. But what really helps, and we, we've shown this empirically with things like GPT three, where it turns out the way that you build a extremely sophisticated uh, text engine that can just uh, essentially fill in the blank, like fill in the blank is, is trivial, but just, you know, you give it a prompt and it runs with a thing. Like you give it a snippet of code to start with. And now it starts like extrapolating, uh, like syntactically correct code that roughly fits in with the pattern of the thing that you're writing. It might not do anything meaningful, but the fact that it can do it at all is like, Jesus so Christ. Let, let's cool. take this and really irritating. It, it runs off ad. of massive amounts of data. That was that was the nugget. Just give it massive amounts of yeah. data. That was the only novel thing with GPT. I, I want your take two. on Grammarly. Um, th this has been the bane of my uh, browsing history uh, existence for the past two years. They, they've died down a little bit recently, but the pitch is, um, well, think of a spell checker, but think of it for syntax and tone and politeness and all this stuff or is this a business meeting or is this a or email or is this a personal email that's a front uh, i always was suspicious of that i don't have any evidence of that front. but i'm like who who the hell would want to give that level of control uh, first of all control over what you're actually expressing but also giving giving the data then to then allow them to scrape what you're actually saying and then modified i don't yeah. know but uh, they have offices in fucking kiev <laughs> wow like i don't if... like they're founded in kiev by uh uh what's his name shilvecchio um something like that like it's <laughs> like it's a like okay so maybe we should back up when something comes out of ukraine slash the ukraine i don't i don't remember which one is supposed to be correct or not i i don't really care this is like uh kind of like what berlin was circa you know 1968 or whatever it's the playground of intelligence like services yeah it's a weak state they have some resources, not dense enough resources that somebody just gobbles it up and like secures the bag. And now Saudi Arabia is your boys, but some resources to the point where you're not just burning an infinite amount of cash. They have some amount of industrial base. They have some amount of agriculture, a lot of smuggling, lots of cyber crime, lots of all this fun stuff. 
but it's enough of a contended zone uh, between East and West that you can get away with shit. Like, you can send your son, your, like, shitbag coathead uh, ex, uh, like, ejected from the Navy son to be uh, on the board of directors of wherever the fuck and just shake them down for millions of dollars. Uh, it's super cool. And, you know, it's not just the United States. Uh, it's a double-sided game where the Russians also have their interests there. The Germans have their interests because a lot of their gas flows through there. It's, uh, it's a very interesting place. So when you see, like... Ukrainian app wants to read your emails to uh you know for to to correct grammar. It's like yeah, sure, buddy. Well, there, there was a there was a pretty bad bug, if I remember correctly. Grammarly has had numerous security problems, uh, but there was a pretty bad bug two three years ago, where uh, basic the, any any web page. Any applet on a web page, any piece of code could, in theory, hijack your browser extension, your browser's extension of Grammarly installed on your machine, and then access documents, history, logs within that Grammarly extension on your on your browser. Right. Which so if you attached Grammarly to your company's uh, on your company machine on Google Chrome, theoretically, anything you've ever put through Grammarly, anything that the Grammarly app has ever seen or had access to, could be compromised by accessing a web page. Right, and it's uh, not just this, like this, a web page. That's yeah. The so the the scenario here is that when you're running something like this. You don't want like a big obvious phone home. You may want to do targeted exfiltration of data where suddenly you visit some website. And uh, as a result, like that particular website compromises that particular person. And it's more discreet. It's less analyzable. It's possible something was misconfigured. It's possible, like, I don't remember the specific vulnerability. I remember the situation you're talking about. But it's it's quite possible that, like, what was intended to be a uh, discrete exfiltration channel was accidentally something that um, was theoretically triggerable by multiple parties, uh, it's also, you know, you could interpret it the the other way as, uh, like, there there's no reason for uh, an application like that, a platform like that, to actually make itself vulnerable to literally anyone who knew of this particular exploit. So it's possible that this was a screw-up on a deeper level or that it was just, you know, just a screw-up. Because it was not in a, it was not something that at the time everybody uh, took as a, uh, a a like smoking gun of uh, state uh, sponsorship. Um, it was interpreted at the time as just a screw up. So, how exactly did we go from 
a young man writing a basic interpreter to a relatively old man running the one of the largest philanthropic offices in the world and being seen as one of the primary uh, combaters of the COVID-19 crisis. Money. I'm talking about Bill Gates for those uh, who are not in the know on this. Well, Microsoft, Microsoft, Microsoft um, today no longer has Gates officially there, but its stock price has, I think, rivaled Apple's recently. I think it's over... Well, actually, I know it's over a trillion dollars in market cap. Um, it's actually one of the only companies in the top five uh, that was the case back in the dot-com bubble that is actually still there uh, of uh, market capitalization companies that are publicly traded, I should say. And um, my suspicions about them have been growing. Um, I didn't, I didn't suspect it on a political level. Um, in the nineties or the two thousands even. Um, but it, it, the economic conspiracies are, are pretty obvious. It's just, they, they sought to dominate the operating system market and, and crush their competitors. But most companies behave that way. They, they were just exceptionally good at it. But the political angle with Bill Gates being you know, in this charitable board and looking at his family's background, um, on Planned Parenthood and his mother being, on the board of, I think it was United Way. That was actually how he got the meeting with IBM to get the default install of MS-DOS on the IBM PC. Um, he was basically floundering in Albuquerque before that, selling basic uh, software to, I think it was uh, MITS uh, Computing, which, which sold these incredibly unuser-friendly uh, computing boxes that had the sales that you would expect. It was basically for hobbyists. Uh, and so he and Paul Allen were operating out of uh, a motel room uh, for a while and their company was really not doing that great. And I think his mom was like, Bill, you know, you dropped out of college. When are you actually going to start doing well? And so she got him a meeting with the IBM chairman or through the IBM chairman because he was also on the board of United Way. Uh, he was able to get a meeting with IBM uh, to talk about uh, having the operating system offered by Microsoft on the IBM PC. And that's what that's what sealed their fortune, as far as I could tell. But the deep state connections, I mean, there was... Um, I, I don't know if this was really evidence of anything. It probably was just a, a coincidence. But one of the versions of uh, the operating system, uh, somebody had either like a blue screen or they decompiled it or they, they looked at some kind of a, a leaked source code. And there was... A, there's like an extension called like NSA something or other. <laughs> yeah, the N and NS like, key, which yeah, uh, in yeah. the naming scheme is not, I don't know, not necessarily, nobody nobody ever had like a credible uh, hypothesis for. It could be network security key. I mean. Yeah, you know. I mean, there's NS, NS lookup is a well-known like quick network tool you can use from the command line. I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say the NSA was going to be that obvious if you guys have ever read anything on the equation group which is this dubbed outfit of the tau which is the tailored access operations over at nsa uh in some of their exposed operations they use various anodyne words to actually denote their projects and more often than not they're actually just cloning 
existing programs that are well known on various machines uh, to avoid suspicion. Um, at one point, I think this group at Tau managed to actually hack BIOS software and implant malware at the BIOS level. Yeah. This so the, so the idea... The the idea, yeah, but the idea that like the NSA is going to be dumb enough to do NS key and like that's that's <laughs> that's the back door, uh, I think is foolish and you know, it, it it feels like something that might even just be black propaganda put out by people like the NSA to make you think that that is the extent of their operation is doing very silly things that are easily noticed to give you the chill effect of, you know, realizing that, oh, they could be monitoring whatever I'm doing. Uh, but the reality is that uh, it's much more targeted. They have a lot of command and control servers they use for various purposes in other countries. And uh, they don't they do not do what I think people have the impression of their mission being. It's It, it is much more devil in the details, tailored access operations, the devil's in the name there. You know, it, it is for very specific cases that the NSA will actually do something like that. I, I, I think you're right. But, but there are there have been cases where the NSA has been caught. I mean, they were, uh, I think they bribed somebody at RSA to get access to the encryption algorithms that they were using uh, in corporations that RSA was selling. Well, they got they got caught stealing a bunch of telecom encryption keys from Europe uh, a couple of years ago during the Obama administration. Yeah, they uh, they had been running a, the uh, uh, I forget what the name of the company is, but the the big German manufacturer of uh, encryption uh, hardware. It's not yeah. Siemens. No, no, it's no, not. it wasn't Siemens. There there were two German companies. There was a Belgian company. There was a French company. They all got hacked. And I think the NSA did some kind of, you know, cloak and dagger thing at first where they basically, what Hank was kind of talking about earlier, they just um, got people hired. There were NSA operatives who were posing as Europeans that got hired at these companies, learned a decent amount about the companies, did work for the companies for some extended period of time, passed themselves off as normal employees uh, and when they left, or when their contracts expired, they gave the necessary information back over to Tau, and the rest is history. You know, all of a sudden, the NSA had access to the encryption keys, and they could retroactively decrypt previously recorded calls and messages and so forth. And so, when you talk about something like Big W Windows. I mean, Microsoft is a huge federal contractor, and that cuts two ways. There's, I think the U.S. government probably runs more machines running various versions of Windows than any other organization on the planet. Definitely more versions of Windows XP. You mean like licensed versions? I think China probably runs more I, in total, but unlicensed. I might doubt that. I mean, there's a lot of weird... Uh, there's a lot of weird boxes that do a lot of weird stuff. And if you're in some data center and it's like, we've got, we've got a million Microsoft windows VMs. It's like, okay, that's probably a, a fed op because hmm. you know, volume licensing and also why would you? But I mean, the point is that that level of deployment to the number of very sensitive, very vulnerable uh, entities 
that it would be a gold mine if you compromise them. And people who frankly would not be in the know of any compromise or counter compromise, like, oh no, you want to change that to this other thing. Like, this is the thing that's good. I mean, that the implication of that is that uh, you don't want, if you are, if you're the NSA, you have a major priority of making sure that Microsoft Windows per se is a secure operating system because that shit is going to be running in the you know commerce department compiling census records it's going to be running in the bureau of labor statistics so that you know your uh, your week by week unemployment numbers uh, don't leak out it's going to be running in nuclear submarines it's going to be running in missile silos it's going to be running on laptops that are calling in tactical strikes in fucking wherever it's it's something that you don't want it to be uh intentionally insecure in any way because you know for a fact that there are people inside of microsoft whose job it is to keep an eye out for that they get to see the internal uh, bug reports of any uh, security vulnerability that goes through certain channels, you know, not necessarily see everyone, but see everyone that they're CC'd on or that's relevant to their organization or whatever. And it's like, there's a billion goddamn Chinamen that have nothing better to do and are paid you know, relatively well to look for these kinds of vulnerabilities. So the contention isn't necessarily that like big W Windows is insecure and compromised in some ill-defined uh, way or some you know global way. I don't think that that's a realistic uh, projection of the behavior. I think it's totally realistic to say that when inevitably you discover security vulnerabilities. Obviously, there are people that get first swing at the pinata that know about them before other people that are specifically clued into them before other people and have the ability to go from uh, here's some random zero day to here's an actual exploit that we can weaponize. Like we know for a fact that that's happened. Um, things like the uh, the Iran uh, attacks where you had uh, it's like three or so separate zero-day exploits. A zero-day is, is like a an exploit that had not been previously known about. You have zero days to prepare for it. It just comes out of nowhere and suddenly you know, you're screwed. But they combined multiple of those, which would have been an extremely expensive endeavor for any private uh, organization. Uh, basically just conclusive evidence of state sponsorship in order to compromise the Iran uh, nuclear program and try to physically destroy their uh, their centrifuges. So, I mean, it, it's, it's important to kind of caveat and be somewhat uh, specific about, like, the contours when we talk about things like uh, somebody being subverted or somebody being beholden or captured. It doesn't mean that, oh, I run my laptop therefore everything is being sent to some data center in utah it's uh it's more like you know at any given time there's probably 
two or three ways to break into this thing, which could be burned if you made a significantly big problem of yourself, but you'd have to make a pretty big problem of yourself. Well, how did Bill Gates get where he is? I mean, from what I were to call, he also ripped off QDOS. I don't know if you guys are familiar with QDOS. Well, okay, so ripped off DOS from Seattle Computing Systems. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tim Patterson. And this is before the infamous, you know, pillaging of Xerox Park that him and Jobs uh You know, took fuck part in. fuck Xerox Park. Whoa. I'm I'm going to throw I'm going to throw my Xerox. hat into the ring there. If you look back in papers sufficiently long, you can find a precedent for almost anything. Like you look at uh, Xerox Park, what they were doing in the '80s, and uh, uh, look up on YouTube the mother of all demos, um, which yeah, has sure. most of the same concepts from the early '60s. The dude is rocking a mouse. He's got a graphical user interface over a big screen. He's doing uh, graphical um, interfacing, um, to reuse a word, with uh, some games there. I think they even jam in some, like, video conferencing. Like, it's a really good demo for 1960-whatever. And the trick is... is Engelbart? I'm trying to remember his name. That sounds familiar. Um, Yeah. But yeah, no, but I've it, seen it. it there's it's, like it's a black huge, and white. Yeah. yeah, it's 1968. It's yeah, it is Engelbart, and it's black and white. And it's like okay, you've got a demo of a particular UI concept, or or some like paradigm, and now you actually have to turn it into a product. You have to get distribution for that product. You have to get people to actually buy into that to the extent that it becomes a standard then you have to take that standard and you have to actually exploit it in order to make money so that it becomes self-sustaining. Like the, these are all, you know, business strategy, however you'd like to qualify it. They're not necessarily technical problems. So like, yeah, Bill Gates didn't write a huge amount of code. He wrote a lot when they were kind of bootstrapping the company and they needed a physical thing in order yeah, to bootstrap the, the, the process. The famous story is, um, actually it was before IBM, but Paul Allen got on a plane to Albuquerque because they, they met, um, I think Paul Allen was in Massachusetts and Gates was at Harvard. I can't remember if Paul Allen was at Harvard too. But anyway, they were close by and they were friends from growing up back in Seattle. But anyway, they um, they got the notion that they could sell a version of Basic to Mits, and Paul Allen flew out there because Gates basically looks like looked look like a child when he was uh, college age, and so Paul Allen had a beard; he was much more businesslike. So he went out, uh, got on a plane, and left. Gates then realized he forgot to write a loader, which is I think some very rudimentary piece of code, but it was essential to actually getting the demo at least working. And so without even having a computer or the version that Alan had, because they were, I think they did this basically by hand, uh, he was able to write the correct version uh, and then get it over to Alan. Or he told Alan this and, and Alan did it on the plane, but they were smart enough and, and they were very capable uh, software engineers 
to do this without all the modern technology of the debugger and the internet and stack overflow and everything like this. They did this basically at the seat of their pants and they're smart guys. I mean, they're, they're both very bright. Um, so I don't think he's, he's a dummy, but I mean, his people skills are a little bit odd, but, um, well, yeah, not, not, a, right, not a dumb like guy. you can't argue with success. Like Absolutely. When, whenever, and a lot of this stuff I think was marketing. Um, you can see this most clearly uh, with the um, uh, Elon Musk uh, promo videos from the uh, the mid nineties. I think he did like a sixty minutes spot when he was like in his twenties, and he's clearly oh, that was hilarious. He's clearly <laughs> playing up the oh, I'm just a hapless nerd like magical computers i love them so more than people some say meanwhile like if you look at his actual personal life it's like yeah he's uh he's he's fathered children with multiple like hard nines like he's 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 a guy he had five he had what is it uh quinn quintuplets five he had quintuplets with his first wife and then he recently had another child yeah it's like the yeah. dude, uh, like, I nerd is pretty ill-defined, but the the idea of social awkwardness per se on the part of somebody like Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk or Mark Zuckerberg that does not describe what's going on there. Like, it's quite possible when you perceive social awkwardness that they literally don't give enough of a shit to make social niceties with you in particular that's part of it but i I think musk has gotten better uh so is bezos um i mean you've you've seen the two panel or where he's like sitting in his office like you know laughing and then there's like him like attending uh sun valley he looks like the terminator with his biceps but um gates has I think he's not really gotten cooler, but he, what he's done, because there there's a lot of really hilarious archival footage when I think CBS did an interview of him back in the 90s where he's uh, they sat in on a product review. And uh, also Joel Spolsky, who was one of the co-founders of Stack Overflow, he used to work at Microsoft. He wrote quite a bit about his interactions within Microsoft, but also he had a meeting with Bill Gates. One of the things that, that impressed him about Gates was that uh, Spolsky was responsible for uh, the uh, VBA for Office. It was like Visual Basic for applications, um, and it, it's basically just like a macro language where you can write within Excel to like automate like you know simple uh, formulas and stuff like that over multiple cells. So he, it's somewhat of an involved technical document that he prepared for Gates, uh, talking about all the features and such uh, and whatnot. And he had a meeting with Gates scheduled, and he goes in, and he he had sent off a spec that they were going to discuss. Uh, it was pretty long. It was probably like 100 pages or so. And this is how Microsoft used to work. They Every product had to have a spec, and then Bill Gates would review every single one. And Spolsky remembers sitting there, and Gates asked him an incredibly specific question about like a date function within Excel that would not have been obvious had you not read the entire thing. And Gates, like, read the whole 100 pages. I, I think So he sent it to him, like, the, a couple days before, and then they had their meeting. He read the whole thing. Um, so he was very, very involved. And then CBS goes in there, and 
they see like one of these product reviews. And I think it was for like Microsoft TV because Gates was holding this um, really horribly designed uh, controller for a television that had some sort of tie in with like MSN or some weirdness like that. And uh, Gates, he, he looked at it and you could see his face just distorting in disgust. And he was famous for basically calling people idiots during meetings. Uh, and the line was, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. And the cameras caught this and he, he sort of was like, what the hell is this? I'm not using this thing. You never, you never understood from the beginning. And he's just like really drilling this guy. And this is all on the camera. And I think over time, especially after the antitrust suit, people or Gates realized that this is a really bad image for himself because he was perceived as this evil genius that was controlling everybody's computer. And I think he probably had some PR consultants or at least thought about it himself uh, to tone down that aggressiveness that he was famous for Absolutely. within Microsoft. And the antitrust suit was key because that was the point at which the government essentially instructed Microsoft to play ball and that it would be a mutually beneficial relationship. And it, it was, uh, you know, post the antitrust uh, lawsuit when uh, Steve Ballmer took over, I think the, the value of the company went up by like fucking like 500% or something. Like Steve that was Ballmer. more after Ballmer, actually. Ballmer did okay. I think it went up, but I think uh, I think uh, you'd have to double check this. But I think Nadella actually, yeah, has Nadella seen has it. added more by like quantity. But I'm I'm pretty sure Ballmer, in terms of like the the percentage, uh, was uh, they every everybody did really really well at Microsoft uh, after they got into a nice, cozy, cooperative relationship uh, where they became basically a national champion of the United States government as opposed to, you know, some rogue upstarts who happened into this pile of money and what do you even know to do with that? Yeah, this 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 theory is being floated about Tesla too. I mean, you talk about like skyrocketing stocks with little profit to show for it. Um, that company is now more valuable than any other automaker on earth. Yet they deliver with less profit per vehicle, less than most of the majors. And I think the the price of Tesla has gone up. By like a Ford and then and then a GM in the past like two weeks, it's insane. And the only or one of the explanations a lot of people have is that uh, Tesla is now part of the system. They've become part of the, the Google, the the tech uh, political oligarchy, which is this weird synthesis where you've got people like Sheryl Sandberg working for President yeah. Clinton, then floating her way over to Facebook uh, and, and Google, uh, actually, before that. Um, and then Eric Schmidt funding uh, the biggest donor to Hillary Clinton, Eric Schmidt being the former CEO of Google. Um, it's just this weird nexus. And a lot of these stocks, like Netflix, doesn't make any money, as far as I know. Maybe it makes a little bit. You but... know, what they do do is uh, give gigantic payoffs to ex-presidents for nothing in particular. Well, it should be noted that the current CEO and founder of Netflix 
spent many years abroad um, doing activities that have as of yet to be documented, as far as I know, including and allegedly a couple years in a stint with the Peace Corps in uh, Southeast Asia. <laughs> I'm not kidding. Like, uh, you know, the guy, the guy is so, so clearly I'm not woke on the Netflix question. I mean, that like, guy is th- so clearly a spook. The, the meta the meta level thing here, like the, the pattern of interaction that I perceive is that through a combination of, uh, you know, kind of government benign neglect, a lot of, uh, legitimately smart entrepreneurial people, a lot of harnessing of the strategic nerd reserve, the United States happened upon a entirely new industrial sector that uh, rapidly came to dominate a lot of portions of the United States and world economy. And at some point, essentially, that sector was recognized as uh, both a threat to the existing power structure as well as a opportunity to finance uh, and to propagate a lot of the goals of that power structure. And you saw kind of a uh, 20-year process. I I don't even know if it took that long. Call it 15. uh, Between roughly uh, 2000 um, until however long you want to count after that, where these dominoes were sort of knocked down one after another until everybody was nicely harmonized. Um, You can look up, um, I think the best exemplar of this pattern is Larry and Sergi Page. You know, they're, uh, I don't believe that prior to Google, they have any particularly nefarious uh, connection that I've I've seen. Sergi, Bryn, Larry Page. Yes. you know, they they were grad students. They uh, created a, a genuinely inventive and yet simple algorithm, and they decided to turn it into a product. It basically worked. a phone book, but it's like well, really it's, good. No, it's more than that. It's uh, it's uh, doing like a, a PCA of a uh, of a of a search graph, which is like you know, it, it sounds obvious when you set when you say it in a uh, like yeah, it, you know, a one liner like that. You. I'm not going to go into well, the, the technical it, digression right. of it, but it, it's like it's something that it's cool. It works. You can see how it's extensible. Uh, you can see how a lot of the original technologies related to that. It worked. It provided like satisfying results, and they brought in quote unquote the adult Schmidt, who reeks to high heaven of spookery. He's a goddamn sexual degenerate, etc. He just looks creepy. I mean, if it, nobody's ever like looked at what his face is composed of, it looks like Craters of the Moon. First of all, he's got these like kind of creepy. Well, the glasses are you know not creepy, but his face it, it's like it's in a perpetual smirk. I, I just I don't get his affect and his behavior, his attitude. Well, if, his if affect is that he can he literally uh got the golden ticket after he was called to the big show. Like read uh, the, uh, the snippet is available online uh, when Google met WikiLeaks, uh, which is about a really weird incident where uh, Eric Schmidt flew when uh, Julian Assange 
uh, was under house arrest before he fled to the Ecuadorian uh, embassy when he was still in some uh, some mansion in uh, in England. Eric Schmidt uh, flew there to interview him for some uh, vanity uh, project that uh, Schmidt was uh, writing some book or something. And as it's described in the narrative, Assange, like the uh, the old uh, glow-in-the-dark detectors slowly lit up over the course of the interview until they were at a, a blazing, uh, blazing green Slimer color. Um, and he sort of details uh, a lot of those uh, connections as well as, um, you know, I think it was called uh, uh, something different, the uh, the Cohen uh, Department of Google uh, devoted to uh, to uh, color evolutions. I think it's Google Ideas now. Yeah, that's the, that's the for, I mean, Assange described that as the State Department of Google. It's Project and Jigsaw. I think that... You know, Google at this point, uh, you mentioned something earlier, Hank, that these algorithms are known at this point. I mean, for in the first couple of years, Google's strength is that it kept this algorithm secret, right? No one really could figure out how did they manage to, to do this. Now it's pretty it was, public it was, knowledge. Uh, they published PageRank. Like, so, yeah, like yeah, anybody like, could, like, you can't just take a paper, though, and just implement it. You've actually got to like set it up to ingest the data right. to do the crawlers to not get banned from all these websites that you're crawling like it's it's execution so, well that's my point i mean google at this at this stage has made it clear that no longer is the strength of the company in necessarily these algorithms they possess i think the the, the algorithm wars are at a close because now you have entrenched companies with a wide array of products and a wide array of integrated services, with pretty seamless systems engineering, and pretty seamless APIs, internal APIs, uh, operating. And, and so now you don't really have the algorithm wars, you don't have the operating system wars anymore. Everything is sort of uh, congealing into similar diagnostic preferences for kind of what whatever functionality you want. Do you have talent wars though? I, I, I mean, I you, yeah, you have some, but I, I feel like at this point, much of the much of the large tech world is so congealed together, and the strength of Google is no longer in the secrecy of these powerful algorithms it has. It's the fact that they came to it first. They were the first to actually get there, and now it's it, you know it, it would be impossible, I think, to yank the notion of googling something out of the minds of people used to say that about microsoft and it's i don't think they're they have a guarantee in anything but what's interesting about them is that they've been able to maintain this lead so to speak even though as you say the, the the search engine technology is pretty much a commodity uh microsoft tried like hell to to take that away from them. And the best they could do is capture 20% of the market. I think they're lower than that now. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, but if you actually use Bing, Microsoft, Yandex against each other, the results are shockingly similar for most things. 
Right. I will say that Google is slightly better at indexing things like JSTOR if you're looking for more specific academic topics. They seem to be a little bit better at finding citations that match or PDFs that are on the web that match your exact kind of phraseology or maybe kind of inferring what you're looking for. But generally, for most search functionality, Yandex, Bing, Google, DuckDuckGo, if you actually run them all side by side, it's nearly identical in what you get. It depends and, because search is a commodity, but it's like, uh, you know, steel is a commodity, and yet you can pay a fuckload for a very specific kind of steel right now. There's search domains that are still... Like LexisNexis is still a thing. LexisNexis still right. makes bank. Uh, there, it's it's you know how do I make good chocolate chip cookies? Yeah, that <laughs> that's a solved problem. Trying to find one article that you remember, like three specific phrases from from fifteen years ago that you're trying to write into an article and cite and you didn't save it at the time because you weren't woke that this kind of shit disappears. Uh, that's an extremely difficult problem uh, that, you know, various search engines solve better or worse than others, but there's also not necessarily any money in it. Nobody's figured out how to make search profitable aside from if you have a specific captive target market like LexisNexis where it's, lawyers, journalists, etc. Otherwise, it's like, it's ads. And well, do, do you think that these companies, and maybe there's some intelligence to support this, or maybe we're just kind of logically assuming this is the future here, but do you think these companies, Google in particular, could in the future be offering some kind of X-key score style service to government operations, private entities to more easily comb through their data, something a little bit nicer than like an Elasticsearch. Yeah. Where they're more they're they're able to grab internal data and maybe access to other streams of data far more easier than anything they could Google, have done. Google has been selling their search box, which is well, this is years ago, but they used to sell a like one of those pizza pizza box uh, style servers with the huh. the Google uh, logo on the front of it designed to be sitting within your data center that it would basically comb all of your data sets and give you very easily digestible yeah, that, uh, that never worked just, that well I didn't get the impression it did but uh, yeah and there there might be at Google but you know there was that famous walkout not too long ago where it uh, became <laughs> this, clear to this some is of the employees what happens. that defense contracting at Google was uh, what was the project you know, Maven where they were working on the uh, the AI predator drone or whatever yeah, yeah. I don't know Something which like that, yeah. incidentally uh, like there's at least a couple of uh, woke trannies who uh, you know. It's like, it's not just my dad, the defense contractor. It's like, oh, yeah, I built vision recognition algorithms for fucking Lockheed by way of Google. Uh, well, that uh, was that, that that freaky Emily Gorchensky dude or whatever was bragging about that on Twitter a couple of years ago, I remember, where 
it was saying that it has done more for national defense than Trump because it's <laughs> developed all kinds of <laughs> like yeah, surface-to-air detection multiple systems. Of those, many such and, cases. And missile systems. And, you know, of course, got just completely bombarded by fellow leftists who were like, what the fuck? Like, you work for the imperialists? But, yeah, you know, it's a thing where uh, clearly... You saw this with, um, and I think, Adam, your point about Microsoft after the antitrust basically started playing ball. I mean, that that was the, remember the threat was that they were going to get broken up into the, the baby bills. And which whatever never made any friggin' sense, but yes. Yeah, but, which never made any sense, but then the threat kind of vanished in 2001. If you're in Colorado, you get to buy the Western version of Windows. If you're yeah. in... Canada, you get to yeah. buy the Canadian. I mean, they were talking about what? breaking up stuff that wasn't monopolistic. They're like, oh, there's going to be Windows and there's going to be everything else. It's like, wait, but isn't isn't Windows the monopoly though? Like, how does yeah. that work? You're right. I'm I'm exaggerating, but it well, was, so, it was well, like Office would be one thing, Windows would be another, and the server group probably would be something else. But yeah, that was oh. the original plan. I want to make a point that I, I think you're right, though. I think that that was probably how they were brought to heel and, and why they're now so enmeshed in the U.S. government. I remember there was a contract that went out a couple of years ago. This is before the Jedi contract, which Microsoft also won. Um, but there was a contract that went out a couple of years ago with Dell. And Dell and Microsoft were going to work together to deliver... Uh, a specialized, not only a specialized version of Azure, which is their cloud platform, to the government. They were, I think, designing specialized hardware. And my, you know, my experience with the Dell PowerEdge, I've used that in my in my professional life. Uh, and most of those enterprise level Dell products, those are just used for running VMs. And kind of what Hank was mentioning earlier. You know, I'm envisioning that at this point, Microsoft likely is providing millions of at least virtual machines, if not standalone servers, to the U.S. government. And they're probably utilized for very anodyne purposes, and they're probably utilized for defense purposes, intelligence purposes. And, you know, on, on top of that, I think that, you know, with Project Maven, and you saw, you saw these, these weirdos at Google... We actually showed some backbone and walked out and refused to work on it. Uh, uh, well, you did. You saw. You you saw the one man who immediately decided to fill in the void and stepped up and said, "I'm going to be a good good citizen and a good patriot and work with the U.S. government." That was Jeff Bezos. Jeff Bezos, like the next day, came out and said that they'd be happy to work on the project. They already had a team ready to go. And you kind of get the impression that there are these like brief moments uh, or brief periods of time where maybe, you know, despite Bill Gates' shady history, his family are all like rich Washington state bankers and being connected to IBM and all that. His father's you know, a lawyer. That, you know, maybe, oh, it was his mom's side that were the, the bankers, but, uh, you know, maybe he he didn't want to work with the U.S. government the same way that Linus Torvalds has said that he's been approached multiple times to work, 
for the government and has declined, um, as far as we know. So I, there, maybe there are times or long lengths of time where these guys. That's say, why he got hey, SJW recently. Yeah, the guy who got who got beat, uh, you know, cocked out of his own organization by his fucking daughter. Um, the more this stuff happens, the more I suspect you know these offers are being made, and suddenly. Hey, you know what? What's this camera footage of you doing this? What What happened here? You know, then it, suddenly it's all. Well, thankfully, it. Linus is, I think, too autistic to get in like a sex scandal. But, uh, uh, right. you know, so my point is, you know, I think guys like Gates, maybe for a time, Linus for sure, others have maybe refused or been reticent to work with the U.S. government, and then all of a sudden, there's this kind of moment where they're brought to heel. And either they work with the feds or they're destroyed. In the case of Linus, the, the process of destruction of Linus Torvalds is well underway. In the case of Bill Gates, he chose to work with the federal government. You know, prior to the antitrust, they didn't have a large contracting relationship with the U.S. government. It just didn't exist in a large level. But now it is probably the single largest provider of any one system to the U.S. government, maybe outside of Oracle, which coincidentally has always played ball with the U.S. government. Larry yeah. Ellison Larry Ellison went on national television after 9-11 and, and offered, to yes. build, offered to build a fucking fingerprint and ID database for free for the federal it government. It did the same which thing for not COVID. something they could have done if you... Right, are. right, but it just, it just goes to show, like... Larry Ellison and Oracle, to my knowledge, have never been on the other side of an antitrust lawsuit and probably should have been for Sun, no. for my sequel, for multiple things. Yeah, they're fine. And, well, okay. They're, they've got, we'll, we'll they've got at the ass. It's just that they're really good at, uh, they're really fine. good at screwing every uh, dollar out of their uh, contracts and really good at getting, uh, getting juicy uh, contracts they're, from people who just good have at, spare okay. cash. I, 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 I will say that, okay, if if anyone deserves an antitrust, you could probably argue Oracle deserved it more than someone yeah, like Microsoft. Morally, sure. Okay, and that guy never even been close to being on the other side of an antitrust lawsuit. And that's because he's always played ball. When has Larry Ellison not played ball with the U.S. government? So, you, you know, you see this with Tesla and Elon. Tesla and Elon are like, always on the brink of war with the NTSB and always on the brink of war with the, the FTC. You know, Elon has been... Yeah, I mean, it, it, Elon's been in so much shit with the U.S. government. Now, to your earlier point, Adam, I don't think his stock is being pumped because uh, he's conceded to the feds i think it's being pumped by teenagers with robin hood accounts but more, how much more volume could they really be putting into this i mean hedge funds usually are more powerful pension funds uh, they're, they're so they dwarf i don't know who has the the tesla stock manipulation like zero hedge was talking about the like wildly out of the money calls being bought which is essentially a uh yeah a extremely highly leveraged bet that uh, the uh, the stock will go to the moon in the next five days, right? Uh, which does not seem credible. Uh, somebody else explained it that uh, 
what could be going on is essentially various various extremely sophisticated uh, traders trying to do really dynamic uh, hedging of their uh, their positions. It it gets into like finance intricacies um, that doesn't necessarily imply stock manipulation because the trickle down between buying a shitload of out of the money calls and actually manipulating the uh, the clearing yeah. price of the stock itself requires the same logical inference that would say that well buying the calls is actually hedging the underlying movement of the stock price and there's no I, reason I don't remember exactly how it works but I heard something to the effect that these hedge funds figure out like a loophole in options trading where they could buy um, buy something you know in the options market whether it's a call or a put and force other people to buy into their favor in order to hedge their current position i might be mixing this up but yeah. but you can like stuff like that you, happens a lot so the margin sure. requirement for tesla got uh, jacked up recently because it was it was volatile enough that there was actually you know, some amount of like platform level uh ruling that no you, you've got to put up more money uh, if you actually want to trade this thing via margin loans but like the only thing that I have to say about Tesla substantively, aside from finance autism, is that uh, if you look at the percentage of their revenue, to say nothing of the amount of their profit, uh, to the extent that they ever make one, uh, that's attributable to uh, carbon credits. Uh, not carbon credits per se, but cafe credits. So the the federal government sets uh, corporate average fuel economy. If you're large, uh, if you're a large automaker. You sell a bunch of cars, the average gas mileage, just like, you know, there's some twiddles to the formula and you know, trucks are weighted differently than sedans, whatever. But your average fuel economy has to hit like X miles per gallon. If you're over that miles per gallon, you get a credit. You can sell that credit to somebody who is under the margin. If you don't have enough combination of credits and your underlying fuel economy you have to pay large penalties so tesla has a computed cafe of like fucking infinity like 120 miles per gallon whatever so they have all these excess cafe credits that they sell to ford uh at all ford gm fiat chrysler etc um, so that like Ford can sell incredibly profitable Mustangs that make you know six miles per gallon or whatever, and it's cool because even after you uh, bake in the price that Elon is demanding for uh, the rights to uh, produce this gas guzzler, uh, they still break even because of the uh, the markup on the fancy uh, the fancy high trim Mustang, but the revenue that uh, that tesla gets from selling cafe credits is really high like if it wasn't for that it would not be a viable uh, business under any circumstances yeah i don't know so where do we go from here i mean social media facebook and twitter which is really kind of a not very valuable platform uh, from a marketer standpoint for various reasons but um Facebook is still extremely popular and powerful and 
another way to spy on you. Where where do we go? Like, so we we had sort of this platform dominance back in the '90s based on what is running on your box, and now it's sort of the phone. Apple's very important as well. Obviously, Google has Android, which is obviously important as well. Uh, and then the social media platforms are are essential. AI has been talked about a lot, uh, but as we've also reviewed, it's fairly open source. And so it's really the user base that I think gives a lot of the power to the social media groups and Googles and, and such who have large numbers of users. What do you guys think the next thing is? I mean, you know, like Neuralink, you talk about Tesla and Elon. Are we going to be, are our brain waves as we're even thinking going to be scanned like a, a, a Amazon Alexa scans our, our speech. What do you guys think is next? I think that there's kind of a broader push to uh, convert the middle class of America and globally from owners to renters uh, where instead of actually yes, owning... Yes, the sharing economy. Yeah, yeah. sharing. It's like the cloud is somebody else's computer and like, you know, the, the sharing economy is somebody else's car. Like instead of owning cars, now you, uh, you know, it's a subscription. Instead of owning a property, you rent from somebody that ultimately accrued capital during the cram down uh, from Goldman Sachs, etc. cetera. Uh, I'm not sure how that hashes out on a computing level because honestly i'm of the opinion that a lot of revenue of the internet economy is fictitious and is pure money laundering i think that a lot of the ad network uh revenue is really opaque uh money transmission on various levels that's just my opinion um I mean, already you see people effectively renting their cell phones where at any cell phone store or Apple store or, you know, if you can find a Microsoft store, I think they're closing them. Um, you always have the option, well, you know, it's an $800 phone, but you can pay like 40 bucks a month for the next year and a half or so. I, I don't know how the math works out, but that's just basic financing. But I think that you know, if you were going to extrapolate trends, you might say that, uh, you know, your participation in various ecosystems will be commoditized. There was a rumor that Twitter was going to have some sort of a, a subscription service, which I would assume would be like effectively an N-word pass, but I'm guessing they're not quite that bold. I'd pay, I'd pay 10 bucks a month to say whatever the fuck I wanted on Twitter. But uh, I don't think Jack's going to roll that way. So I'm going to wait and see exactly what that uh, subscription amounts to. Um, I, If I could predict with exact certitude the, the, the sea change in uh, revenue models for Silicon Valley, I'd probably, uh, probably quit my job and do that instead. Hans, what do you think? I'm inclined to agree with you that a lot of this is just money laundering. Um, I think that there was credible evidence not too long ago that a great deal of the <laughs> views and, and page visits 
at, directed at some of this nation's leading publications, Washington Post, New York Times, other papers of record, uh, were coming from China, and suspiciously similar frequencies and volumes, almost indicating some kind of um, you know, bot network or even just click farms were being utilized to drive up ad revenue. Um, in the age of so many people utilizing uh, disconnect, utilizing VPNs, utilizing ad blockers, utilizing thing even more advanced things like battery, U matrix, uh, and these things are widely proliferated. Wi Fi. At the, at the very least, uh, Adblock is widely proliferated. I, I don't know anyone under the age of like 20 who doesn't use it. Uh, I have younger family that use it, and I, I didn't even tell them about it. They just kind of found it on their own. They're, no, no one, none of them are tech people. Is that going to um, turn off the stories about hot singles in my area? Because I like to make sure that there's not any hot singles in my area that are going to unnecessarily tempt me well here's the thing yeah i don't i don't, I don't, I don't really know i don't really know what if, if there's a future in internet advertising you know you see that there's been some more novel attempts to i think advertise to people on the internet but well, product placement yeah. i mean if you look at joe rogan yeah. Kind of an interesting example. It, you know, it, you know all those review videos, those product review videos, the unboxing yeah. videos, yeah. and this, these right. channels on YouTube are promoted by YouTube, right? And um, they they garner they millions. Of views. They garner yeah. millions of views of video. They they garner um, you know millions of subscribers very quickly. My my contention is that more than likely that's where we're headed, and that. That that is how brands and companies are going to derive value from these platforms. There, you know, I, I know for a fact. I won't say how, but I know for a fact there are a lot of pretty lengthy discussions going on more and more these days regarding the util- the utilization of digital ad buying, and more and more yep. people are coming to this conclusion that uh, it's not worth it. It's just not worth it. Now, no one wants to be the first to the door and stop ad buying and completely change the way that they engage uh, people with products and services. That just, you know, no one wants to be the first through the wall. Uh, It's a preference cascade problem. But in the same vein, those conversations are happening. They're happening at higher and higher levels and and greater frequency. And I, I think that ultimately platforms like YouTube and platforms like Spotify are going to take a different tact, where it's going to be much more subtle product advertising, much more subtle service advertising. They might change or they might ask large content creators to augment or insert certain kinds of content into their into their production. Well, I, I think it'll be the inverse, actually. I mean, oh, really? you've seen, well, you've seen uh, increasing, like every... Every month, like clockwork, YouTube has another big purge where they nuke just a fistful of channels that have nothing to do with anything except for they happen to be very popular. And I think that uh, if, and I think it, that's a very credible hypothesis, that if, if advertising ends up being more 
embedded and oh hey as long as as long as i've got you here check out nordvpn and you know buy nordvpn holy shit everyone is advertising nordvpn someone who's used nordvpn i gotta tell you kids it sucks my my assumption is that uh, so ads that run before after during the video or on the sidebar or whatever those are legible to the platform advertising that takes the form of oh and by the way i I really like these sunglasses they you know really highlight my my jaw bones on this like makeup tutorial or whatever that's less legible so in order to extract value from that you need to move from uh content producers being the uh sort of draw to the platform and attempting to ride upon them to the inverse of we are going to charge large content producers a certain amount for the privilege of being on our platform. And by the way, that also nicely uh, deals with our quote unquote problem of unapproved actors because, you know, they, they have no corresponding source of revenue and how much is it worth to you in monetary terms or to spout your opinions on our, our video tube. Well, you know, Hollywood solved this problem, um, decades ago. Hollywood had a, had a choice to make. I think really in the seventies, this became a problem. Declining revenues, People were tired of fucking westerns. People were tired of the same old movies. Seventies sci-fi. Seventies well, sci-fi, while off to an interesting start, was already kind of plateauing, and um, you know, people were trying to figure out for especially a lot of also TV shows, radio programs, many you know the miniseries, the anthologies, all kinds of things. Uh, we want we, we don't want more commercials. We want the same amount of content. But how exactly do we get the commercials into the content? Do we have like a commercial play on the TV screen in the corner? You know that was experimented with, and everyone hated it. Okay, we're not going to do that. Um, how about product placement? How about licensing arrangements? How about royalty fees? So suddenly. There was this uh, huge explosion, and it really, it really feels like it took off in the '80s, where uh, products become part of the film, and and you know often it's seamless, you don't notice it, but your brain does, and it, you kind of you think about it later, and you realize, wow, there was there was a lot of Coca Cola in that movie. Why is everyone drinking Coca Cola specifically? Or why is everyone drinking Budweiser? You know, why, why are the why Transformers are, all Fords? Why why are there several like close up and panning shots of the Dell logo on the server in this hacking scene? I mean, you know, suddenly your brain thinks, oh wow, maybe I was being advertised to. And I think that on some level that might be where we're going just is you know in, in all media and all visual and uh, trans you know audiovisual transitory mediums will be the gradual uh, introduction and, and pro- of product placement of product integration into the content. Sometimes the content will even be about the product, uh, and and I think that people will become numb to it because there will be no other alternative. 
the, the mass purgings, the mass bannings that go on all the time. I mean, the other day, YouTube deleted an electronic repair channel. This was a huge thread on like Stack Overflow, or uh, not Stack Overflow, Hacker News, uh, where all these guys in Hacker News are like, you know, what's what's going on here? Like, why is YouTube deleting all these random channels? And there were a couple of dopey Google employees who identified themselves as Google employees in, in, in the thread, which is hilarious in of itself. And uh, they were just savaged. I think one of them deleted his posts. <laughs> I've seen these guys pop up and, once and in a while before. Got, they got absolutely savage. The, the way the Google employees talk, it's it's you can tell that they're under about ten degrees of constraints whether yeah. they can actually speak like honestly uh, or even technically, uh, and it's it's like we understand your concern. We hear at Google. Uh, appreciate your feedback, and we want to maximize. Or we don't say maximize. Well, this, well, this one guy was user like, experience. You know, uh, with every this, uh, ounce of strength we have. This Very one Google engineer pops up in the thread, and he's like, "Well, this I'm not in that department," and blah blah blah. And then, like, I think one of the major comments underneath was, "Shut the fuck up if you're not in that department." <laughs> it's like, no one cares, and there was a lot of dare I say it, blackpilling on Hacker News, where all these guys are realizing, oh shit, the internet's it's, ruined. It's like Gamergate. I mean, and, and well, I think that, I think that there's, mass, there's a mass realization not. now that there will be no more interesting content on the internet. It will be removed or it will be relegated to more and more irrelevant, poorly more hosted. interesting high bandwidth content. Yeah. I would, it, it, I would not be, need be long, like, interesting videos that you can't... I, I think that there is... I don't know, maybe, maybe you want to save that for later. But there's... Uh, unless, like, whatever you're doing lends itself well to being distributed via... BitTorrent or something else where you amortize uh, storage and bandwidth fees. Uh, I would I would not plan on your funny meme videos being a, uh, a reasonable venture to distribute those to a, a mass audience in the future. Yeah, but funny meme videos are not going to get canned by Google in mass quantities. Things like electronics repair and alternative. <laughs> Alternative history and politics shows like ours will be. And I think that it, it's just, I honestly think that there is some level of concerted effort here from not just, it's not just Google, it's not al- whatever alphabet at this point. It's not just them. And, and I, don't, I don't know really if there is an overall direction that's being made or there's just multiple interests that seem to co-align here, but... There does seem to be some level of a concerted attempt to remove anything that is incidentally interesting or useful from mass distribution. Like electronics well, repair yeah. is something that pisses off a large number of major corporations in this country and abroad. Our show pissed off numerous amounts of people who, you know, I mean, even the fucking ADL mentioned us. So I think that honestly... If, if you have any level of informative or important content to deliver or instructions to deliver or, or discussion to be had, it'll be removed because it'll be deemed as not being worthy of advertising revenue, which is already flatlining. 
And there's no easy way to move it into the Hollywoodization future where you slowly integrate advertisement of products into into the content itself. That's just not going to happen. So why would you bother hosting it? Why would you bother allowing, you know, hosting it at a cost to yourself? I think that's the general formula we're coming to for the Internet. And we did, you know, I don't know if you guys remember, but we did a show on silly, like kind of on this same subject nearly three years ago in 2017, right? We did it on kind of Silicon Valley. I think it might have been right after Charlottesville. Um, And I think at the time we were still on YouTube. Uh, There there was another co-host to this podcast. A lot lot had, a lot was different. But what was uh, not quite so different yet was that the mass bannings that we were talking about were going to happen, right? I think England was the first through that wall. Uh, did not only come to pass, but they were f- like far worse than we ever could have imagined. Oh, I imagine some pretty bad things. Oh, I think that they're far worse than at least we postulated on that show publicly. And... I, you know, it's at the point now where it's very evident that most of these platforms are probably not making enough money to reliably sustain themselves. I suspect that's why Google went public in the first place, is that there wasn't some, there simply was not enough money to sustain themselves at the scale they wanted, continuing on as a private company. They needed public investors, and your your grandma's pension fund is ultimately what's helping Google stay alive at the scale it operates. I, I, you could be right, but... That's, yeah, I, that's I, why I, these, these companies went public, not mm. for, like, intrinsic reasons, but, like, you you pay your employees in stock options, and your employees expect that they're going to be able to turn those stock options into money. That's true, but I also think they're fundamentally a very profitable company, unless we've completely missed the boat on their accounting. I mean, I, you know, it's a very scalable business they have. Um, well, it's also only profitable because people are still under the impression that that search is going to deliver them the right advertising metrics to get their products and services out. No one has called bullshit. Yes, there have been yes. multiple no one, no one, Facebook no, advertising metric scandals. What was that? There have been multiple Facebook advertising oh, yeah. oh, metrics yeah. oh, yeah. scandals oh, yeah. where they yeah. were not counting views correctly, where they were, uh, like, the the easiest thing in the world is there's, like, billions of uh, Indians and Pakistanis. If you want a certain number of impressions, you can just jam whatever in that garbage pit. And you'll get those impressions by God. And does that reflect in your internal metrics that you have available it's like well maybe if you dig through to page seven and you see oh this ad primarily ran in these languages and these subcontinents ah it doesn't seem like we got a good return for that did we i think that no one no one is willing to call bullshit on this yet and i actually you know during that cambridge analytica scandal which by the way kids (laughs) by the way at least several hundred organizations are actively doing what they're they were accused yeah, that of was doing. such a bizarre of yeah. all of the 
bad actors in that ecosystem <laughs> it's i it it had to be some some in message something or like there was just some dude in particular that was making bank from that particular relationship it's like in uh in that uh, oliver stone nixon movie where it keeps talking about that business in cuba it's like clearly code for something it's like yeah cambridge analytica hmm, what, what's up with that cambridge analytica you know what i you know what i mean by that yeah i think okay so here, here's the thing guys no one no one is willing to call bullshit on all of this. And I actually, when the Cambridge Analytica scandal blew up, I suspected, or I hoped, maybe, that finally we were going to have an open and honest conversation about what is really going on with not just these search networks, but ad revenue. What is really going on with these metrics? Because as someone who's worked on the back end of this stuff, it is complete and utter horseshit most of it and it is a total guessing game you have you have like 45 year olds who do data science that are like just dreaming up random models and algorithms to try and parse this data together and at the end of the day it's just like simple geolocation correlation that doesn't mean anything and it it's total BS at every level and it doesn't matter the scale of the organization and I thought maybe we can have an honest conversation about this finally and maybe this will be one of the big death knells for these large conglomerates is that people will finally be willing to call out what they're increasingly seeing um, but that didn't happen it was directed into anti-Trump energy which was the most bizarre aspect of it and now I think that the moment for actually recognizing that much of the internet is has gone horribly awry and is not functioning the way we're being told, um, that that moment is past. Uh, and now we're going to be at a stage where the internet is is entering this sort of new phase where it's very very Hollywoodized, very very advertisement prone all of those advertisements don't really work um the era of the internet being slightly dangerous where you could easily get a piece of malware like just visiting a random site and you know destroying your machine those days are mostly over but i think that those were actually the golden days because that kept a lot of people off the internet and it allowed the internet to be somewhat useful and required some degree of technical sophistication to be proficient with. Now, you know, we're at this stage where it, it's all kind of hopeless. And I feel like um, many of our Silicon Valley tech overlords are going to have their positions entrenched for 30, 40 years at least. And uh, we're, you know, we're not we're not going to see any kind of like and major antitrust come out against these uh, these companies. And if it does happen, it'll be just like what happened with Microsoft, where uh, the antitrust is ultimately toothless, results in nothing, and is really just some kind of government bargaining scheme with the company behind the scenes. I, I am, for once, not that blackpilled. Oh, 
Uh, wow, what does that say about me? I do think. <laughs> uh, I, How did that? I agree to the extent that these people are going to be institutional players for the foreseeable future. Uh, I don't think that the internet as we know it today is going to remain the sole uh, mechanism of information propagation or that it will uh, absorb all uh, uh, efforts at communicating interesting information with people. Like the, the idea of platform censorship is uh, also well entrenched by people who have every incentive to route around this problem. There are uh, some very interesting people that are communicating very interesting data, uh, very interesting information, tutorials, etc. cetera. Uh, partially through kind of the internet, quote unquote, but not via like www.easilycensorablewhatever.blogspot.net. So there's a, there's a cat and mouse game going on. Uh, and part of the incentive of these large organizations is to just not to solve the problem per se, but just to relegate it to dark corners. You just, you know, you don't want to, you don't want to let any ugly opinions into your hug box on Twitter. So you've got to make sure that you kind of keep the spheres separate. Don't let them intersect. It's not going to be a, uh, a red pill transmission medium that will be very effectively censored. But what's more interesting than that is the propagation of certain technical information and technical uh, coordination channels where you are able to discreetly bootstrap off of certain public channels given the correct incentives, but the substantive network lives outside of them. I think that's a process that's well on its way uh, and is only going to accelerate, I think, by necessity. Uh, and also because uh, of a sort of benign neglect where the people that are theoretically responsible for clamping down on that don't really have any incentive to actually clamp down on that. So it's not particularly satisfying or triumphal. Um, I think that the biggest uh, pile of bullshit is the whole 1990s crypto tech nerd triumphalism who, who remembers the internet detects censorship as damage and routes around it? This machine kills fascists. Yeah, remember not that? not so much. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> this this machine does what it's told. That's what makes yeah. the machine useful. So, uh, the plus side is, if you just look at the technical building blocks that are available, we have strong cryptography. People are like, don't roll your own crypto. It's dangerous. It doesn't work. You're vulnerable to timing attacks. Like, do you know how much easier it is to roll your own crypto just from nothing than it was in the mid nineties? Like, like, holy shit. You can, you can actually have, you know, not necessarily like a robust web service that's, you know, invulnerable to timing attacks and all this other shit. Like, but you can like, Take a thing, encrypt it, fucking print it on a piece of paper, 
send it to somebody else, and they can decrypt it. Like, you can actually physically do this without any internet-connected device available at all. You can program a software-defined radio to do shit that, unless the FCC party van is literally in your area, is not even recorded by anyone. Granted, the range isn't that great, but, you know, problems. Like, these are all things that somebody with a modicum of technical sophistication or desire can achieve that were completely unfathomable like you know, 20, 30 years ago. So, yeah, open source software is a thing and very well known, but I think open source hardware might be an interesting area in the future. Uh, Cody Wilson obviously is an example of that. Uh, all the, all the fucking all Harbor the Freight is an stuff. example of that. Yeah. Like, go, go buy a mini mill. Like, right. <laughs> save, save up your shekels instead of. Instead but you of, can make a mini mill now. That's what's that's what's even cooler. Well, you, know? you can make it's, a 3D printer. You probably don't want to make a mini mill unless you already have a mini mill. Uh, plus yeah, the, yeah, the, the strength of the steel is kind of important, right? But uh, like, just or, order the fucking shittiest seven hundred dollar mini mill, and it's astonishing once you start in a a genre of projects that uh requires certain equipment how much they compound on each other and you're like oh the industrial revolution it's fucking happening in my garage like progressively flatter surfaces allow me to make progressively flatter surfaces and suddenly i'm building like fucking telescopes and shit it's great whatever like you know use use your imagination the same thing happens with things like uh, like radios that you convert to digital, the same thing happens with all sorts of interesting product applications. And we still have enough of a concentrated smart person reserve that there's local groups of people doing interesting software and hardware projects, almost certainly, you know, demographically weighted uh, within a hundred miles of wherever the exemplar user of our podcast happens to be. All right, let's bring it in, guys. Final words. Are we, uh, are we good? Learn to code. Uh, I am in favor of everyone learning risk five, uh, <laughs> making your own CNC mill with a, uh, <laughs> some kind of, I don't know, team of metallurgists and uh, 3D printers. Everyone can maybe come up with a replacement for a TCP IP too. Let's, uh, let's start rethinking all this stuff. Um, I don't really, I don't really know what else there is to do at this point. I'm, I'm very, very black on the, <laughs> both the history and the future of the, uh, the internet and I, uh, and technology in general at this stage. And I think that, uh, unless people kind of take it upon themselves to factor up their own industrial revolution, uh, we're, we're going to be stuck with what we have and it's just going to get progressively worse. Well, I, I would add, um, decentralization is, is good. Uh, do that, but don't be afraid to participate in the system if you can take advantage of it. Uh, because if you're ideologically, uh, against 
getting the most you can get out of life, you're not going to be able to compete. And so I would say if you can make a lot of money or learn a lot or network a lot and become more powerful and become more potent of uh, a force, do whatever it takes to do that. And I don't think uh, we're going to be able to win if we try to create our own duplicative infrastructure. I would like to have that as a fallback, but I just don't think it's sufficient.